There are days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. Colonel G.T. Webber from Army Intelligence. Pack your bags. You're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. Priority one. What do they want? Where are they from? Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And this time we are once again talking about something that is in theaters. We've done this a few other times, but um, it gives us an opportunity to hit something while it's kind of out there and encourage or discourage people from going to see such a film. And in this case, the film is Arrival with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker. And it is based on the Ted Chang short story slash novella, The Story of Your Life. At least I think that's what it is, right? The story of your life, or is it just story of your life? I think it's the story of your life. What Colin said. Hang on. As usual, I am right. Story of your life, not the story of your life. Yeah. What? According to Wikipedia, and, and when has that ever been wrong? So, story of your life actually won the Nebula Award in 2000 for best novella. So, I guess that's we should call it a novella. Um, so, we all, oh, all right. recently read that and then watched the movie um colin was with me james went went selfishly off on his own well with his wife but yes so we're going to talk about the story and the movie i'm not sure that we're going to be able to talk really about just the story and then just the movie um but we can give it a try anybody want to take a stab at uh the story of the story of a story of your life Take a stab at the story of your life. I just realized that there's no thes, and there's we should we should do this entire podcast without using the word the because it's not the arrival, which was the Charlie Sheen right. Charlie Sheen movie, and it's not the story of your life, which is probably sixty eleven movies. So no thes for the rest of the podcast. It is, I will point out though that the, I didn't I saw it at the Cornelius Theater, uh-huh. and they had the arrival on their marquee. Oh, seriously? Yeah. (laughs) That sounds about right. (laughs) The place is always teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. No, that's okay. You you know, the thing is, I liked that movie, The Arrival. But uh, Colin, why don't you take a a poke at what is story of your life? Wow. Well, there's there's a lot of layers to it, which is one of the problems that we're having with trying to describe it succinctly. But and we should we sorry, we should say we're going to go ahead and spoil everything because there's no way to really avoid it. Um, The story is not really easily available. You can find it in collections. I think, Colin, you found it in Lightspeed magazine. Yes, I did. I think it's issue number 30. We'll drop a link in the doobly doos, as they say, if you're a vlog brother or in the uh, podcast comments. Show notes. We'll call them show notes. Show notes. Yes. So yeah, it's it might be hard for people to see, but they could just go see the movie and then see how it it works for them. I kind of do regret that I hadn't I wasn't able to see the movie without reading the story first, but um, I wasn't certain of my ability to read the story in the, the time allotted between watching movie and recording podcast. And then I read it today, so I totally could have. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, it only takes a couple hours, maybe. Yeah. So sorry, Colin. I I, I cut you off. Was I doing something? I think you were talking about. The story of story of your life. Yes, uh, it's a uh, an alien first contact event where all over the Earth, uh, twelve, I guess you'd call them a viewing station for lack of a better purpose, are set up by the aliens, and it's our job to try and communicate with them. And that's where our main character comes in. Her name is Louise, and uh, she's a linguist, and her job is to try and figure out how we can teach 
how we can learn the alien language without teaching them English because our government feels threatened by that. Right. I think the 12 number comes from the movie, not from the book. Rereading it today, I think there's more uh, either stations or ships in, in the book. Okay. And and that's I think that's what's going to happen. You know, we're we're going to have a hard time differentiating some of the things between the story and the and the movie. And we don't need to focus on all the differences. Oh yes, we do. <laughs> Look who I'm talking to. They are they are subtle. Yes, and we and do. Yes, it's true. Right. First of all, there's no VHS. What the heck? What do you mean no VHS? In the in the movie. Why should there be? Oh, because they're recording on tapes. In the, in the book, they're yeah. In the book, they're recording on VHS tapes. Oh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. We should have used Betamax to mislead the aliens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the in the process of learning the language, Louise finds out that she is able to start. She having she starts having these visions, and she really can't place them at first. At first, she kind of in the movie talks about or, or thinks they might be caused by the virus booster because they were given a, a really strong immune system booster um, or exhaustion because they're under tons of pressure. And in fact, one of the major differences between the story and the movie is uh, from what point of view the story is told. In the movie, it's told in a linear fashion from beginning to end. Yeah. In the book, uh, Louise is kind of remembering the story in the past. Kind of, yeah. That was my impression of the novel, novella as well. Yeah. See, rereading it, I don't think it was in the past. I think it was the present. It's just the fact that she can, she's having these memories from the future makes it seem like it's in the past. Yeah, but in the book, it seemed like she was telling the story to her daughter, even though her daughter's. Yeah, it does. It does seem like that. Mm -hmm. That's, that was my, that's how I read it, I guess. Yeah, and and I think your mileage may vary on that, um, especially mm-hmm. like reading it once or twice. The first time through, it there was some kind of confusing parts to it. For instance, when um, all the all the things, all the memories about her daughter, she talks about you know her husband and the fact that they'd split up and and all this stuff, and then she's telling about what is it apparently. Actually, I never got the impression it was in the past. That's why. Because um, she talks about meeting this guy and sleeping with him. And I thought, oh, she's cheating on her husband? What's up with that? And then I realized that, okay, no, those flashes were from the future with that guy. So, um, so yeah, I never read it as as being, as her retelling it from the future. I got it as she was going through this at the time, but the heptopod language was beginning to affect her so that she was having memories drop in in chunks. I see. I don't think that there's any way to uh, pronounce one way or the other on it, though, because of the nature of what this book does, of what the story does. Mm, I might have to agree with you on that one, Be- because all all the, I guess, I guess this is the thing, right? All of the memories, all the memory parts are kind of told in present tense, and everything else is told in past tense, and so that's, I think that's kind of where where the difference comes in. L- let me ask you this then: mm-hmm. when the movie starts, can she remember the future? No. When the book starts, can she remember the future? The novella? Yeah. Then she must have already learned the heptopod language when the novella starts. Oh, snap. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He's got pwned. Good job, Colin. Okay, so so what you're saying, Colin, is that when the the novella starts, she has already gone through everything and she's retelling what she's gone through. But it's but but the the memories are still from the future from her point of view. Yeah. Uh, Well, 
I mean, you, you, you could read it as everything has happened up to and including her daughter's death. Yes. Yeah. But I don't think that's correct, because she talks about in there that she basically has now a 50-year history of her own memories from the point that she learned Heptapod forward to her own death. So she's seeing everything up to her own death. Yeah, and it's almost like she's become uh, unmoored in time, able to perceive all things in time happening simultaneously. Um, right. And, th- and then we get into more differences between that and the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so th- th- it's that's one of the interesting things about the story and why, why I wanted to reread it, because it really does kind of do strange things to your mind um, to, to kind of the way you think about time in, in that sense, it, it reminded me of slaughterhouse five, which I don't think either of you guys have read mm-hmm. um, where the idea with that is that the main character has become, become unstuck in time. Um, almost like you said, Colin, where he just experiences time in this completely nonlinear way. So we'll have one flash to being on what is it, Tralfamador? I think that, that that's the name of the aliens that kidnap him and take them and display him in like a zoo. Um, and then he'll have flashes back to the firebombing of Dresden. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting book. It's it's sort of a classic, I suppose, at this point, which is why I read it. Yeah. Anywho, back on topic. Yeah, <laughs> it, I think it's going to be hard to to stay linear in this, and it would it would make no sense to be completely linear. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I did enjoy the way the book kind of spun out that mystery slowly, where where they, where you've got all these things where she's talking about stuff that happened either in the past or in the future, and I was reading them as happening in the past, um, all the remembrances of her daughter, even though they're told in kind of a present tense or a future tense, it's like, you will do this when you're 13. But it, it's kind of, and the movie is kind of the same way, where, where partway through you learn what's going on and it kind of reinterprets everything that's come before it. Yeah, I'll agree with Colin. Say the movie did tend to be a little bit more, a bit more linear than the, than the book came to be, especially right out the gate. Yeah, but I mean, I, all right, I'll be, I'll be obstinate here then and say that I, in what sense do you think, Colin, that that it's more linear? In the in the story of her learning the language or in the flashes that she has? You know, as we've been talking about in the novella, we're having a hard time telling when. When that's when that's when her dialogue begins occurring, because I think to her, because she's learned heptapod B, there there is no difference between now and then and in the past. But right. in the movie, you know, there's a very defined, mainly linear, like ninety percent linear storytelling arc, where mm-hmm. you know the aliens land, she begins working with the government, she begins learning heptapod B, she begins having flash forwards, yeah. And then, and then I think there's a divergence in story between the two. You could say that maybe those details were left out of the novella because they weren't that important. Um, but there's sure. not a point where the nations, other nations, try to attack the aliens, um, and maybe that's because they are at little, you know, viewing sites rather than full chunks of of ship which have come down to the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess I guess I'll, I'll agree with you. Um, that there is kind of, you do see the beginning of it, a definite beginning to when she starts having those flashes in the movie where, where the book starts with one of those. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, it, it kind of, you have it the whole time in the story where in the movie, you see it beginning to happen, but then once they start happening, they're not in any particular order because you get pretty early on a flash of her laying, uh, next to her daughter who's died. Yes. 
And then after the daughter has died, there's some episodes of her dealing with a younger girl who's the same daughter at an earlier point in her life. Yeah. Right. There's like different, different events in her present are triggering memories from the the future. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's, so I guess, uh, let's talk about things that are present in the story that aren't in the movie. Um, like Fairmat's principle of least time. That was an interesting one. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I guess you didn't have as much in the movie. The you you had an exposition dump midway through the movie that basically said that they perceive time in a different way than we do. But the way that's done in the story is by talking about Fairmat's principle of least time, where I guess the the, the example that they have is a path of light through air and into water mm-hmm. from point to point, and and the the idea is that. And for people who don't know this, um, there's a different refraction index in light and water. And so when light hits water, it will actually change its course slightly. But basically what it, what it says is that that path is the most efficient one, which is kind of mind-blowing, actually. Because the idea is that it's like the light has to know where it's going before it decides right. what, what path to take. Um, and so then they, they introduce the concept of the variational principles. I have a, actually, I do have a quote on this one. Okay. So, and this is, this is the difference of the, the perception of time between humans and heptapods. Um, it says, when the ancestors of humans and heptapods first acquired the spark of consciousness, they both perceived the same physical world, but they parsed their perceptions differently. The worldviews that ultimately arose were the end result of that divergence. Humans had developed a sequential mode of awareness, while heptapods had developed a simultaneous mode of awareness. We experienced events in an order, and perceived their relationship as cause and effect. They experienced all events at once, and perceived a purpose underlying them all, a minimizing, maximizing purpose. So that's, it's an interesting concept. And I like, the the other part to talk about is, of course, is the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis, which isn't name-dropped exactly in the, in the story, but it's totally based on it. And uh, it has nothing to do with Lieutenant Commander Worf from Star Trek. Which is disappointing. Yes. So we were talking about things that are in the novella, but not in the movie. Yeah. And so I'm not sure it makes sense to just talk about that or just start talking about the movie and then talk about the differences as they come up. No, no. I I think you've got a good launching point for that because um, I was going to mention the whole talk about determinism. Yeah. So in the novella, it talks about that when you're able to perceive time simultaneously, you lose your free will. And it does that in a, in a kind of interesting way. She has a flash forward to when her daughter is going to knock over a bowl. And then in what might be present time, she's shopping with her husband and they go into the store and then she knows that's the bowl that she has to buy because it's the one that's going to break. And she just naturally picks it up. Yeah. And one of the more touching things about the novella that are also in the movie is this understanding that her daughter is going to die. And she appears to take no action because of it. Right. Right. Uh, and in the movie, they, they do the best they can to try and give Louise a break from that. They do. You know? Yeah. Um, because they say there's nothing that can be done. Yeah. There's not. Yeah. It's an incurable disease. There's nothing that can be done. Yeah. Yeah. And they also go to explain, you know, why, why her husband leaves her in the movie. And it's because, she tells her husband that the child they have is going to die and there's nothing they can do about it. And the husband yeah. can't stand knowing that the daughter is going to die. And so he leaves. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that 
also, though, is a way of, of leaving it a little more hopeful that the dad could come around. Um, because in the in the book, she's already with somebody else. Yes. Yeah, because they talk about the college graduation and how her new husband and his new wife are both there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that is an interesting thing, too, right? If if you could see the future, wouldn't you change it? But but the, the book talks about how if if there is this, if you can genuinely see the future, it must be unchangeable if you're seeing the actual future. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where the th- the free will question comes in, right? Well, that was the the paradox they're analyzing in the book, right? It's yeah, like you can't have a future in stone with free will; it's impossible. Yeah, but there is also a notion in there, and I, I couldn't find. I was looking for the reference where she was essentially saying that she chose to do what she knew happened in the future. So, free will, no free will. Determinism, no determinism, who knows? Maybe it's like semi-deterministic. <laughs> Is that like a little bit pregnant? Right. <laughs> yeah, I thought the novella was pretty clear that it was a black and white issue. Yeah. You know, you she, she came to accept the fact that she had no longer free will. Hmm. And she was just being kind of carried along. Right. Kind of like just floating down a river without a battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so why were the tetrapods here, according to the book? Heptapods? Did I say tetrapods? <laughs> yeah, that's War of the Worlds, I guess. Um, <laughs> and they were tripods. <laughs> right. Heptapods. Why, why were they here? I don't, I don't remember a reason being given. Yeah, the only reason given is they're here to observe. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about what, what we think of that. Um, but it's kind, it makes it sort of a strange... Um, I mean, it's already not a very formulaic story, not a very traditionally told story because of the jumping around in time. But then the fact that the aliens then just go away um, without ever... In my opinion, I think it makes the story awesome. I like it for that reason. Because it's not your typical alien invasion story. Yeah. And it's not... And it also doesn't happen the way the the government thinks it's going to happen in both adaptations. Right. Yeah. And so when I, when I was... Uh, watching the movie, I thought that some of the stuff about the government's meddling and trying to, you know, get their own advantages and stuff, I thought that was made up. But then I went back and reread the story and no, they were trying to figure out, oh, they wanted to do a gift exchange. Well, can we give them something or give them hints about what we want yeah. from them? How about cold, how about cold fusion? How about, how about an interstellar drive? You know? Well, um, and even the way it ends, right? They, they were able to get a piece of technology only to find out it had been discovered by someone else days or weeks earlier. Right. So, so they didn't give us much of anything. So yeah, it's just just almost an anticlimax, but it's the kind of anticlimax that works in a short story. I'm not sure it works in a novel or in a movie the same way. Well, maybe. We'd have to try it and find out. Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't happen that way, so we don't know. Yeah, well, in the movie, True. everyone tries to get the competitive advantage, right? right. And yes. at one point, they translate that the, the aliens are giving them the weapon. Right. And that... Uh, and then they figure out that each one has a part of the weapon. Right. I think they, I, I, I'm guessing they misinterpret that weapon in a tool thing. Right. They and, didn't actually say that, but they kind of led you to believe that in several parts of the movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, Louise basically objects and says, you know, they may, they may not have a distinction between weapon and tool. We we don't know. And that's one of the great things about both the, the book and the movie is that it really brings in linguistics, and it's something that's very much missing from almost all other science fiction. 
because you know you go to a distant planet and they speak English. Yeah, or or you have the universal translator, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So every now and then you you get something where like okay, translation is is difficult to serve man. Exactly. Well, and there's an example in the book, right? The rabbit is ready to eat. Um, if you don't understand what's the object and what's the subject, you don't know if it's talking about dinner is being served and it's rabbit or the rabbit is ready to eat food. And yeah, I like yeah. the kangaroo story. I'm glad they brought that over from the book. Yeah. Yeah. Although when they first presented it, I was convinced that they had changed the sense of the story. And then she, she, she brings the rest of it in after the generals left the room. Oh yeah. 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 The, uh, one thing I did like in the movie. Um, so in the movie they bring in, you have the different countries, right? As opposed to the novella, we didn't really have a uh, different countries involved too much. I think there were different countries involved. It's just it wasn't a plot point. Right. Yeah. Well, they weren't really involved in the plot, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm saying. But in the movie, they explain how the Chinese kind of took a different route in translating the the um, ideograms, right? Mm -hmm. Or whatever. They, not, they didn't call them ideograms. They call them semigrams? Yeah, something like that. Sesmiasmograms? Is that right? What were they called? I think, yes, yeah, like semiograms. Semiograms, I think, yeah. But... I thought it was funny that the Chinese and the Russians were going from the perspective of Mahjong or just a, a game where there's winners and losers. Right. As opposed to the Americans were trying to just do it from a, I guess as they put a non-zero-sum game perspective. Yes. I'm not sure the Americans were, but the, the, the translation and science teams were. Um, so one other thing. Oh, dang it. What was it? I had it just a second ago. Were you going to talk about how annoying the narrative was there with the... Uh, Hawkeye? No, no, we haven't really transitioned to talking about the movie so much yet. I'm just bringing it up for you, too, because I know you're going to. I remember Seth talking about the movie, though. I was thinking of you during that little uh, monologue of his, too. I'm like, yeah, Seth is going to hate this part. <laughs> well, we'll see. Ask me about it later. So are we missing anything else that was in the book that really didn't make it to the movie? Well, you mentioned earlier, Colin, that... Um, one key difference between the movie and and the story is that there is no real in-person contact in the in the story. They have these what did they what do they even call they, them? Looking glasses. Yeah, looking glasses. So so they're doing kind of face-to-face -face interaction. They can see each other and so that's that's a little bit different in in the film. The other thing is there's a lot more talk of heptapod A in the story. Because, and this is something that we, we could we could talk about, that there's the spoken language, which is um, mm. really, really difficult for humans to reproduce the right sounds, um, because it's it's like blowing on the world's largest tuba kind of thing, where then Heptapod B gets most of the, the focus in the film. It seems like that was kind of an uh, adaptational efficiency device. It's, it's, the, the, more, film, it's right? the more visual way to tell it. So, yeah, so to yeah, me, it makes yeah. It makes complete it makes sense. sense, but but that's why you miss out on one of the good <laughs> jokes in the book, um, where yeah. they they nickname oh, right. the two heptapods, flapper flapper and raspberry because because they have this orifice that that flaps um, when the, as the air goes through it. Well, it's good they didn't nickname him in the movie flapper and raspberry. Huh? That see that's an adaptational consideration. I wanted to run by Colin and and see what he would have preferred. So so why don't, why don't we kind of transition into talking about about the movie and and talk about that Colin the the nicknames would you rather have had the nicknames be the same not necessarily it would have been a nice nod but there were so many other nods throughout the entire movie okay um and i i am aware right that it, 
there's a limited budget. They managed to do this only in $47 million, which means they have to keep the CGI small. Um, and I thought that where they invested in CGI, it worked really, really well. Yeah. 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 Well, I thought the writing was awesome, the way they did that effect. Or the, the inking. Yeah. Agreed. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Okay, so let's, let's take a step back then. Uh, overall thoughts on, on the movie. Um, so... James, you want to go first? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, overall thoughts of the movie, I thought it was a great movie, a good adaptation. Uh, the only real part that annoyed me in the movie was that stupid monologue of Hawkeye's. <laughs> I, I've poisoned your mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. So what about you, Colin? It, it's a beautiful movie. It's a good adaptation, and it's a good movie. Um, all the right pieces are there. I, I was very happy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They had a good set of actors. I liked the chemistry between Amy Adams, Forrest Whitaker, and Hawkeye, because I can't think of his name now. Jeremy Renner. Yes. Thank you. Nice. Uh, yeah, so so I agree. I, I think it's a it's a gorgeous movie. I think it is a clinic in how to adapt uh, a shorter work into a full length film, you know, where you keep kind of the best of the story and you know, stay largely faithful to it where it makes sense and then maybe make a couple of changes or additions that make it kind of more theatrical. Yeah. And I liked getting a science fiction movie that wasn't, you know, effects ridden with action and gory. Totally. I guess. Not that I'm against that, but it's a nice change of pace. Well, this is not, it's not a film that is for everybody. Um, and I went, I went on to Fandango and put in my rating for it, you know, and saw a bunch of one star and two star reviews where they're like, I, I walked out of this thing. It was so boring. You know, there's no action in this movie. And I'm like, yeah, right. I think you went in thinking the movie. You were looking for the wrong movie. Yeah, totally. You're barking <laughs> yeah. at the wrong movie. Yeah. It reminded me of Ex Machina in that way, where it's more of a, you know, thinker and watcher and listener than a blow your mind with action. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will admit that the first hour was pretty slow and I was, I was getting a little worried. Um, but it was so worth the wait because, because the tension that it built in toward the end, um, in a couple key scenes was just, just phenomenal and, and really paid off well for me. Okay. So talking about the movie, so we were, we were, I guess, Colin, um, when, when I redirected us to do overall thoughts, um, we were talking about the names. And so to me, the reason that I don't mind that they didn't use the names is because the names totally make sense in the story. But to name them that in the film would have required explanation that they could have done. But since I liked the movie as much as I did, I'm kind of glad that they went a different way. Because it wasn't, I guess, it, to me, it wasn't uh, like a a non-negotiable thing that needs to be adapted. All the, all the stuff to me that needed to be pulled from that story really was. Well, let's, let's talk about the stuff that they added in then. And and we've done a few yeah. of those already. You know, they try they try to tie a bow around uh, why, why they're going to separate. And... Um, you know, uh, try to redeem Louise for choosing to have a daughter that's going to die early. Although the way that right. she dies is completely different from the book. Right. Incurable disease versus what? Uh, rock climbing accident? Rock climbing accident. Or m- mountain climbing? Yeah. yeah. One of the things that really sticks out to me is the explosion. Yes. And uh, it reminded me a lot of the current political situation where the media seems to be, you know, <laughs> fanning the flames of, of passion on, on either side of the argument. And we don't need to argue one side or the other. But what happens is a group of soldiers decide to take matters into their own hands and they're going to blow up the ship before they can do something bad to us. Yeah. And 
And there's a thing that, that gets me here, and that is that since the aliens experienced time simultaneously, they didn't do anything to stop this. Right. And it, it goes back to the whole, well, we have accepted, we've ex- what do they call it? It's called, you drank from the well, and so you lose your free will. Right. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing, though, is that th- they do take action. Right. They did. Yeah, they did yeah, take Ab- action. Abbott and takes save. action and saves their lives at the expense of his own. I'm saying his. Um, it's. I, I didn't see eight legs, just seven, so it could be a girl. <laughs> um, but but so yeah, I thought that was there. Were, that showed kind of some nobility on on the part of the of the aliens, um, and the, the whole bomb plot also just reminded me of. It seemed to me a little more realistic. Um, the movie did in its portrayal of how different governments might perceive this and how it could be really really tricky. Um, to bring everybody together. And so then, and that's how the tension was built in, right? If we don't all work together, then we're going to get no benefit from what they've given us. And so, so they give the, the benefit goes basically to Louise that she can see the future. And so she has the ability to fix it. Um, and, and so this is the major difference, right? The major difference is the aliens have not come here just to observe. They've come here to make a friendship with us because they're going to need our help in 3000 years. Yes. Which is it's it's a fascinating thing to think about from for a simultaneous view of the of the universe, because they're kind of acting in their own past in in a, in a sense, mm-hmm. and and um, it it reminded me a little bit of Foundation, right? Psychohistory, like they they knew in three thousand years we're going to need help from humanity, so we need to go to them and give them the ability to come together because we need that to happen. And so that that scene where um, she's starting to have flashes in time and starting to interact with them a little bit the first one that happens is the same as it is in the story um the zero zero loss game was that what it was oh no non-zero sum game non-zero sum yeah. game, right that, that where where she interacts with herself in the past and in the future where she hears him say it and then immediately she's in her flash forward telling that to her daughter um but then then it starts happening where she meets the um general shang at uh at the whatever the unity dinner thingy <laughs> whatever it is unity event of some sort right? yeah where she's having to ask him for what to tell him in the past um which is fascinating so i i, I love the way that scene worked yeah it, it reminds me of um bill and ted's excellent adventure <laughs> right let's trash can remember a trash can <laughs> remember, trash can. remember <laughs> to write yourself a note to go into your dad's office and put this in here <laughs> hey i did steal my dad's keys <laughs> yeah um and, and then there's the, the constant mention of what the aliens giving them is a weapon and the aliens even yeah. tell her use the weapon mm-hmm. and it brings back up the, the point you mentioned seth right is it a tool or is it a weapon uh it turns out to be very very effective in, in either case. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about that narration. So after reading, Colin, I think you read, you read the story first uh-huh. and then, then we met up to, to play some disc golf and, and you're like, I'm really worried about this movie. Um, and so then I read the, I read the book and I thought, okay, I can see, I, I think I said to you, I think they're going to drop half the book. I think that they're going to drop all the flash forward stuff and just focus on the linguistic part of it or something. Um, because I couldn't imagine how they would have time to do everything. And so the way they ended up doing it was with that little narration, that little exposition dump in the middle, where they had had to talk about kind of how they had their, what breakthroughs that they had. So in that sense, since the rest of the movie was so good, I don't really mind the narration bit. So sorry, James, 
I'm not going to not going to totally condemn it. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, He's being inconsistent. No, no. I've, I've told you not all narration is equal. Sometimes, you know, it's necessary to, to bring the audience in on something. And there's some of the stuff in this where I, I just thought this is unfilmable. Um, it's in a, in a book, you know, you've got the narration right there and it's, it makes perfect sense. But in a movie, how do you get all this stuff across? Um, so, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't really mind that, that he kind of had that bit about, um, what, I, what was it even about the narration that he did? Uh, it was about the different between the ideogram and the sesmiogram or whatever you call it, the different types of grams that they're using to translate the heptapod language, heptapod B, I guess. So it was a breakthrough in the translation? As Kind of explaining the the procedure that led to the breakthrough in the translation, yeah, yeah, okay. So- and actually, for a while there, I thought maybe like it was going through the narration. That's the part where I was like, "Oh, Seth's gonna hate this part." <laughs> <laughs> but then, after at the end of the monologue, it, it pans to him holding what looks like a journal. So it, when that when that scene occurred, I thought maybe he was just writing all this stuff out in a journal, and I kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt and just went with the movie from there, but. Hmm. Um, I don't know how many other people may have thought that. Sure. Yeah. It didn't matter that much to me. I don't, I don't mind a good, uh, you know, topical or an appropriate voiceover. Yeah. You got to pick your spots. Um, but I felt I'd have to go see it again to see if it really struck, stuck out at me as, as something that didn't work. Um, but it didn't, I, I mean, I did have the thought, James, I thought, oh, narration really. Mm. But, but on the other hand, I kind of thought going in, you're going to have to have some exposition in there and I'm not sure how they're going to do it. I prefer it. If you're going to have an exposition dump, you know, bring in a character, like they're talking to the CIA guy or something or, or talking to, uh, uh, well, see, that's the thing. I think, I think they could have done it as a a teaching moment between Louise and either the generalist or the CIA guy. Yeah. I think there could have been some dialogue between Louise and the general and Ian explaining these different tools that linguists have and that would have, you know, that could have led through the, to the breakthrough. Yeah. That that was a great scene. That scene that you just described, James, where the, the guy asks her, well, why can't you just ask them what their purpose is? And so she goes and breaks it down bit by bit to say just how much language and understanding you have to have to get to that question. Yeah. Right. She she had already, she had already done it previously. They I think she could they could have had another scene with her doing the very same thing only with the different tools that they have at their their disposal to and, and, and instead of the monologue. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's let's talk about the um, coffee cup stain language that they had because that's what it reminded me of. Like like when you set down a coffee cup and it and you've, you've, you it's leaked down the the bottom and it leaves a leaves a stain on your napkin or whatever. Mm-hmm. I imagined it completely differently. How so? Uh, I imagined it like um, more like maybe more like Chinese ideograms because it talked about rotating them and superimposing them and doing all these other kind of things rather than having this circle, which is a great way to represent how they think about time, by the way, um, right. and how rotating the circle and adding various thicknesses and, and offshoots of it would would convey different meaning. Yeah. I'll say yeah. kanji myself. So yeah. It's really I, similar to that. I was thinking more of like sentence diagramming, like the way the way things, or like like Feynman diagrams. Um, so it was more lines than than circles, mm-hmm. and and I wasn't thinking of it as its characters really. Um, but they did talk about how in the in the book when they were introducing mathematics and trying to to talk to them about that, um, that they tried using spherical coordinates because they thought it might because of their physiology being more 
radial. Uh-huh. Um, so to me, then when watching the movie and seeing him then use the circle, that made perfect sense to me. So I, th- uh-huh. I think that was a great way to, to, to conceptualize it because, because when you talk about rotating something, I mean, what's easier to rotate than, than a wheel, right? Yeah. Um, I really liked the, the, the kind of tech that they came up with for assembling Heptapod B, you know, where you, you, you put in the ideograms. The, the, only, the only difference is the computer is optimizing it, not Louise, where I pictured that Louise had gotten so fluent with it that, um, that she could just do it all on her own, though the movie then does have her do that. There is one scene where, she, where the aliens emit their, their inky hover fluid, and then doesn't mm-hmm. she shape it into a, a sesmias? Semisiograph. Semisiograph. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so they, they do show that she does have that mastery of it, but, but I really enjoyed the, the way their kind of technology worked for, for doing that translation. Mm-hmm. You know, interestingly enough, and we'll, we'll put a link to this down in the show notes as well, because I don't think I've shared it with, with Seth even yet, but uh, Stephen Wolfram from Wolfram Alpha was heavily involved in helping to describe the science used in the movie uh, up to the point where he and his son were creating the screens that were displayed and the, the, all the whiteboard talk was written by Steven kind of off the cuff. Um, and he actually has a breakdown of all the different points of it and what it's doing on what it, what it was um, like a gravity, a graviton laser and all sorts of other kind of cool ideas about, you know, how the, the alien spaceship might've traveled through time and space and all. Nice. Um, I liked the kind of art style of the of the ships where they were kind of semicircular you know oblong semicircle shapes Mm -hmm. and that reminded me kind of of um the description of the looking glasses and i I like that kind of thing where it's it's a kind of a to me a clear nod back to the source yeah it looks like just elongated lenses i thought they might fit together to make one hole right and and you you could definitely think that based on the one in 12 idea um, so one of the complaints that I saw was was um, all the time that was spent on them suiting up, decontaminating, and and getting their suits off. Didn't bother me. No, didn't bother me much either. I mean, it, it was slow paced, but I was expecting a more uh, thoughtful movie, more slower paced. And I I wonder if that's because we had read the story first. Well, and that was the source of one of my, my big concerns, right? Because I told you, I think when we played on Friday, that I was worried that they were going to ruin the movie. And it's because the trailer has uh, sections of all the action sequences, the explosion, the military ships coming in. And I'm thinking that if that's what they choose to show, if that's what's supposed to be representative of the movie, they've completely lost the book. Yeah. Well, you know, trailers do um, really undersell movies sometimes. I mean, like, the, uh, did you guys ever see the movie Drive? No. No. With with Ryan Gosling? So the trailer made it look like The Fast and the Furious, but it's a much more kind of contemplative, stylistic movie. And so a lot of people just hated it because they expected a, a conventional action movie. And it's much more kind of philosophical and, and unconventional. Um, and I really liked it, but based on that trailer you would expect you would have expected a completely different film and and that's that's my fear with this one that people are going to go into it expecting independence day and and they're getting something much smarter but um and so so i guess my advice for anybody out there if you if you've seen this movie and enjoyed it like we did and somebody tells you oh i hated that movie it was it was it was terribly slow and stuff just respond to them the way i respond to people when they say i don't like baseball it's too slow i say well you know it's a thinking person's game baseball yes what 
As as a viewer, how do you have to think to watch baseball? Colin, you're stepping on my point here, man. I'm saying <laughs> I, you just have to understand what's going on. And so what I'm saying is if somebody says uh, that movie's really slow, you can be like, I know, it's a movie for thinking people. Uh-huh. I'm saying you can insult people. Just I'm, I'm giving carte blanche to everybody out there. Insult your friends who don't like this movie. The, the views of Seth do not necessarily uh, reflect the views of Colin because he doesn't like baseball either. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't like soccer or football either. Okay. Well, you, you know, you're, you're across. You like disc golf. Right? I like disc golf. Mm-hmm. I, I disc like golf American football. thinking man's game. Because you got to remember your score along the way. Oh, no. I have right. a phone app to do that for me now. Okay, what was up with Forrest Whitaker's accent? Did that bother anybody else? The way it came and went and then finally stayed away. It's, it's like, I think he was doing a New England kind of accent, like like Boston, but, you know, where he'd say like normal instead of normal. And I thought, what in this character's creation necessitated him being from New England? Because it's not even like it was, it's not even like it was a, it was a Colin eight o'clock in the morning thing where this character is canonically from Boston. Um, just let him talk like Forrest Whitaker and we'll be fine. <laughs> so that, that was, that was, so I saw Dr. Strange and that's one of my issues where, where I find Benedict Cumberbatch's accent a little distracting and I didn't find that it held up over the whole movie. So I would just rather have, you wanted that actor? Fine. Let him use his regular accent. But he's American, damn it. He's doc, Dr. Strange is American. There you go. But why does he have to be American? That's my, my question, right? He lives in New York. Lots of people from, from other places live in New York. It's a melting pot. So, but if you want to be totally canonical, then, then I guess his, his character origin story is that he's born. I don't know. I, I haven't, I haven't read anything of, of Dr. Strange, so I don't know, but like, don't give characters unnecessary accents is what I'm saying. Fair enough. I'll agree with you on that one. I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't really like his American accent yeah. that much either. But I really do like Forrest Whitaker. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of willing to let it pass. So here's one, Colin, um, our Let's see, my, my son and your younger son mm-hmm. both saw the movie with us. Uh, what did Tim think of it? Tim really enjoyed it. And he was, he was asking me, well, how's it, how's it the same? How's it different? And I said, well, here, you know, here's, here's my nook. Go, go off and read it. And he came back and he said, uh, I like the movie better. And I said, well, why, why do you like it better? And I think it was because it's a more, well, one, it, I think it's told in linear from the beginning, which makes it a little bit easier to approach. Um, mm-hmm. it, a bunch of loose ends are tied up. Um, it, it could be that the movie is is a a more approachable story for a lot of people. Mm. Could be he wanted to tweak me and say that you were right. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, so my son also enjoyed it quite a bit. And you know, we're talking about what is Tim is fifteen, yes, and so is Ethan, and and you know, not necessarily the kind of movie that a typical 15 year old is going to enjoy, but my son also really, really enjoyed it. Um, and part of it is, I think, well, it's one of those movies that if we watched at home and, and, or if anybody, if, if, if you're listening to this after you've watched it on video and you watched it while you were using your phone, you probably did not get the ideal viewing experience. Um, this is a movie that needs watching and, and contemplating. Um, and, for some reason that worked for my son, which lots of times he gets bored. And so, so I, I asked him in the car, like, which did you prefer? 2001 A Space Odyssey or <laughs> Arrival? And I oh. said, Arrival, duh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned Colin, it's a beautiful film. It's, I, I, there's nothing out of place in the movie in terms of the way it is shot. 
Um, there's some great, like I said, some great tension. The scene where the bomb is counting down and Abbott is trying to, I think he's trying to communicate to them. Um, but I'm not totally sure. I think that's when he kind of invites her forward to, to draw on the, in the ink herself, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that was just kind of his way of, of almost saying goodbye or like of having a moment with her before, before then he like pounded on the glass and sent them, um, reeling back. Um, I yeah, I think the, he was trying to convey the fact that they were in danger. Yeah. But, but that's, that's also, I think that goes against the way they perceive things. Um, for for him to warn them like that, but because because to him it's an event that happens. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I like the fact that they had they had kind of the, I, I thought the squid ink kind of thing made sense given the the seven limbs, and then I liked that their main appendage had seven fingers as well. In the book, didn't they have four fingers? Yeah, in the book it was four. I just had a thought regarding was it was it Abbott that warned him or Custom? No, it was Abbott one that. That warned them of the, or was trying to warn them of the bomb going off. Yeah. So I'm wondering, in in the same, uh, the same effect that Louise learning their language had on her, I wonder if them learning the human language had the effect on them, and that he was gaining a, maybe a little bit of free will, and he actually changed his timeline. That's an excellent point, James. It's uncharacteristically perceptive. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of I Borg, that uh, the Next Generation episode, where they wonder if the singularity and individuality of of Hugh's existence while he was aboard the Enterprise would change the collective. I can come up with a Star Trek, Star Trek metaphor for almost everything. That's because there's so much Star Trek out there. That is true, actually. And but no new Star Trek content as of recently in the last few years. No, it's been sadly <laughs> lacking. Boy, I wish they'd make some new movies. Well, let's let's talk a little statistics. So the the movie was made in 2015 and released this year. Uh, it won an award at the Venice Film Festival, the Future Film Festival Digital Award. It cost 47 million dollars to make, and at least as of right now, uh, being released for less than a week, it's made 28 million dollars. So it looks like it's on its way to being you know financially successful. I was a little worried based on the, the the capacity of our theater, Colin. Yeah, our theater was almost, there might have been 15 people there, maybe 20. Yeah. Oh, really? When did you guys go see it? Friday night. At 6.15. Yeah. It's possible that later showings uh, did better than that. I don't really know what it's up against other than week two of Doctor Strange. And I can say as somebody who's seen both, um, Arrival is 10 times the movie that Doctor Strange is. Not that I didn't enjoy it. It's just, it's it's, you know. Popcorn versus meal. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I haven't seen Doctor Strange yet. Yeah. You know, when you look at the current trailer for Arrival, it says 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And now that it's been released and seen by lots of other people, that has uh, dropped to 93%. Right. And th- the interesting thing is if you look at the fan score too, mm-hmm. the critics like it more than the fans. Yeah. Um, and that's not always the case. I mean, w- when it's when it's more kind of popcorny movies... Um, you tend to get a much higher fan score because they're they're like this was fun and fun is underrated, uh, where where critics are looking for something more objective. Right. Well, I think I, I agree with you in your perspective of the trailer and it's under, undermining the movie a little bit. Yeah. Because just Arkham watching that trailer, I wouldn't have thought this was going to be the movie it is. The trailer definitely pants it to be like an almost alien invasion thing, and yeah, you know, 
what the different governments, how they're responding to an alien invasion, et cetera, et cetera, when that's yeah. not really the case. Yeah. Well, so I've seen, I've seen a lot of negative reviews saying this is not a science fiction movie and I completely disagree. <laughs> well, that's just ludicrous. It, I don't think people understand what a science fiction movie is. That's the problem. They think that Independence Day is a science fiction movie, um, where that's an action movie dressed up as science fiction. Yeah. It's, as Harlan Ellison would say, that's sci-fi. Right. Not science fiction. Well, and I think there's room for both. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I would say that Alien is science fiction. Aliens, more sci-fi, but I love Aliens. Right. Uh, we about ready to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. I think so. it it sounds like it's uh it's you know thumbs up across the board. Um, good story, good movie, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I would agree. Anybody want to rank them? You want you you want to tell us what you what you thought, Colin? I'm I'm going to be unsurprising this time because I I so blew you away the last time we did this. Um, I'm going to go novella movie. Okay, um, and it's because the last time we did this in the future. Yes, the last time we did this in the future. I remember <laughs> us doing it in the past, and I I said things which really surprised you badly. Spoiler alert. Yep. So, um, I, I enjoyed the ambiguity of the way it was story told in the novel, in the novella. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, there's nothing wrong with what they did in the movie. It's just, I like this other way better. Sure. All right. What about you, James? Yeah. The novella movie as well. Okay. I have a really hard time, uh, picking with this one. Um, I think it's an outstanding movie. I think just to be different, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say movie story, um, but I've read the story twice, and and I might I might read it again as I'm reading through this this story collection because it's really good. Um, but I would yeah. read it again just to get it try and get it straight in my head again because yeah I the I left the movie understanding everything that's going on, but the book is a little bit different. It, I like you know it made me think a little bit more, yeah. and that's why I, kinda, I that's why I think I prefer it. Yeah. Um. So my son actually told me that. Um, I asked him, when did you pick up that this, the, the flashes that she was having were from the future? And he didn't pick it up until, um, Costello pointed out what the, what the weapon was, what the tool was that she could see the future. And I, I still wish that I had been able to have that experience of, of seeing when I caught on to it. Hmm. But, but it's, it's interesting. And, and that's, that's another thing I think that people, it may rub people the wrong way to have something happen three quarters of the way through the movie that reinterpret the whole movie up to that point. But yeah, I really like it. So, uh, I guess we're wrapped on that. And as, as we intimated, um, we have done an episode in the past that will be posted in the future. So our Christmas episode is already in the bag. Um, how Christmassy is it? Well, you'll have to listen to find out. Um, and I don't think I'll even spoil what the topic is. Or should I? I probably should. That way, no, that way, don't do it. Well, but that way, people can watch things and 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 listen to things. Uh, they can see it pop up in the feed, and then then choose to either sally forth um, and and be spoiled, or or go listen. That's that's what I do sometimes. Uh, other than that, though, I guess I mean we're pretty much wrapped for the year, actually. And so so we're, we we got to talk about what we're going to start doing early next year. And, and we, no, we don't have to do that today, but we also have to figure out what we're going to do for episode 50 because we're coming up on it. This is episode 46, December will be 47. And so it's going to end up that around our third anniversary, we're going to be doing episode number 50. And so I feel like we got to, we got to shoot for the moon here. And Colin and I have been talking about this and James, you've been difficult to, uh, to hang out with recently. Um, or at least to get to, 
it's been difficult to make it happen. Not that you've been difficult, um, but uh, we've been talking about doing something kind of classic or, you know, something big. And so I was thinking Dune. And I know you've got some international travel coming up and, you know, what better time to read an ambitious novel than when you're on vacation, right? What better time to bore myself than when I'm on vacation? Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Hey, boring yourself with a book will prepare you very well for the David Lynch version of Dune. Yeah. Uh, stay tuned. We, we may do that. Maybe we do War of the Worlds, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, something something else um, ambitious. Just do something that's actually fun to read. Hey, you know, Dune is a very good book. It, and it, it is definitely a science fiction classic. It's one of those ones that makes it on the lists of uh, you should have read these science fiction books. So, you know, but Lord of the Rings makes it on there, too, and that can be a bit dry in places. But but it's still really good. So there. See, see, Colin, I said something positive about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, shall we sign off? I think we have signed off in the future. I just don't know what the sign off is yet. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. Oh, my. Hmm. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the future never may, come back no, to haunt not. you. Yeah. And when you're being pushed out of the spaceship by aliens, may you hit a zero gravity zone first. There we go. I like it. It's good enough. <laughs> what, you know what we can do in lieu of that is just say, bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. That works, too. I do hope you guys said something blooper reel worthy while I was away. Nope. No, we were fairly <sighs> quiet. Come on. Dang it. I lost it. It was, it was probably a quality, quality thought, too. Seriously. Probably. Yeah. It was probably yeah. a little, little more than a brain fart. There's, there's an interesting story. So I've, I've been starting to read some of the other stories in, in the collection that we got from the library, Stories of Your Life and Others. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the one that includes Story of Your Life. But one of the other stories is like a speculative future journal publication that talks about how uh, metahuman science has now eclipsed human science to the point that humans no longer understand it. Um, oh, yeah. I don't remember where I was going that, with that, but uh, it's an interesting story. So I'm going gonna, gonna to read some more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there was a point in there somewhere. Um, we'll put this in the uh, in the blooper reel. So <laughs> if anybody else can figure out what the... Unless I can figure out what the context was and go back and record something that makes it make more sense. Um, but that seems pretty doubtful to me. <laughs>